0: Good afternoon, this is Gary Kavner here on TRSI. Today is the 4th of the 12th, a Friday, so the weekend is upon us. I'm here today with my friend and colleague, Michael Dwyer, who I know is just bullying for that weekend. Michael,
1: how have you been? I'm so excited, Gary, about the prospect of going for a coffee and sitting inside. It's just going, it's uh, it's overcoming. It's like Christmas has come early. So I want to start
0: off today, Michael, with a... uh, Something I, I saw and I really enjoyed it was it was fabulous to see, so it involves the um the motion that was brought forward to uh, pay student nurses, mm-hmm. uh, or that's that's the way it's being put out. It's you know, the government and people involved in the government voted against giving student nurses uh, payment for the work that they're doing. Scrooge,
1: Grinch, Boo, hiss.
0: So I went and I, I read the transcript of the actual uh, debate on it. So it was, it was a private member's bill that was brought forward by Mick Barry. It seems to have been done in combination um, with People Before Profit because when he brought it forward, he shared his time with Gino Kenny and Paul Murphy. It was about giving student nurses uh, payment for the work they're doing. It was also about a ton
1: of other stuff. So it goes... Really? Because I, I have turned to really be talking about a ton of other stuff. Really? Oh, well, that's... Um yeah. That's why, you see, that's why I come here, Gary. I come here to hear the news, all of the news.
0: So it, it, it talked about giving students pay, yeah, that it did. And then it also said, abolish all fees for students who are training to work on the front line of the health service in order to stem the brain drain and allow the health service executive to recruit a significant or a sufficient number of staff to run our health service at safe and adequate staffed levels and ensure parity of pay conditions and esteem for nurses and midwives with all other paramedical graduates, including the thirty-seven-hour week, which Michael would be rather a big change for the health service to make
1: right now. Well, uh, that seems to be rather rather more than paying student nurses. So, can we? Okay, starting at the last one to guarantee pay parity of and parity and parity of esteem. Yeah, we'll leave that there for the minute. We'll park that. With all other paramedical, no, this is not Sinn Fein, so paramedical, not par. What would a paramedical. So that's everybody who isn't a doctor, but is. Me- for example, would a physiotherapist be a paramedical?
0: From what I understand, is a healthcare professional who is there to provide emergency medical care for, for a critical patients. So you'd be talking about paramedics for the most part, really, I suppose.
1: And they get, so all ambulance drivers now are paramedics, isn't that right? I believe so. So, and they want pay parity with them for nurses. Well,
0: also conditions, and it specifies the 37-hour week.
1: Well, yeah. That would be tricky, I'd imagine.
0: Yeah, that uh, that would be an interesting one. He also says the most dangerous job in Ireland this year is a healthcare worker. But I don't think that's true. I don't think the COVID cases are actually high enough to move it ahead of what would be the, normally the most uh, dangerous jobs. But anyway, the, it was an interesting debate in that only two people spoke from the government side, both Fianna And generally where you see a debate where the opposition is let run wild and then there's either like, one person stands up and talks from the government side of things, that generally means this is something unpopular and we're going to vote against it. But we don't really want anyone on record but what they actually did is is they voted they voted for Mick Barry's bill Michael they just amended they it. voted for it oh, yes yeah because I mean before the bill they said it's a great bill here's an amendment and then they voted on the amendment and then they voted on the bill so Mick Barry's bill went true now what was said was this and rabbit stood up because Stephen Donnelly wasn't there for Reasons. And he, she said, I move amendment number one to delete all words after doll Aaron and substitute the following. Now, to read you from uh, Mick Barry's motion, Michael, just to, to the start yes. of it, that doll Aaron and then several hundred words. Okay. So they, uh, they let him keep the first three words.
1: <laughs> well, that was generous. And then
0: they voted through his bill with the amendment, which totally rewrote it. Which I've, I rather enjoyed.
1: Yeah.
0: It's, just, it's, it's such an important bill. It's a great bill. We've just some slight changes, everything after the first three words. And oh look, we're voting for your bill. Jesus, you must be so happy, Mick.
1: With minor amendations. I
0: haven't seen the recording of it, but I'd like to see how he reacted when they said, well, our amendment is delete all words after dollar, and which is your third word, and substitute the following.
1: Mm. That, that's very much... It's not so much copy and paste as cut and paste, isn't it?
0: It's it's sort of a, okay, well, you've made us do something, so here's the something.
1: But it's... If you wanted to make a point about whether or not nurse, student nurses should be paid, that's a reasonable... You could have a debate about that discussion, particularly in the context of, that it there it may have appeared that there were some kind of guarantees or some kind of promises were made that are not being... That would be a reasonable thing. But just to tack it on to a... An omnibus of pie in the sky, how much... What's the point? What's, I don't know. What's the point. I mean, how much, how much has our borrowing extended in this stage? How much of our economy has contracted? What is the state of our external debt? What is the, st- the current state of our, cu- our current account uh, deficit? What is the level of the fall of revenues combined with the inc- uh, apparel increase in spending. But let's do this anyway, because we can always go to the Sugar Rock Candy Mountain and pick the money off the money trees.
0: Well, I mean, yes, there's an eight or nine billion euro hole in public finances, but uh, it's, it's so this 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 motion had, I think, 19 different points to it, of which a number were just notes and some were actual calls to action. Yes. Uh, And some involved things like accepting that successive governments have let the health service decay, which is a bit problematic for the government of the day to accept, because then they have to come out and go, by the way, lads, we're shit. Not a popular thing. But it did mean that the government voted against pay for student nurses, which is terrible PR, and that's all that matters. The fact it was amended to this entire thing won't matter. It'll just be... Well, Simon Harris said he would give uh, pay to student nurses, and now he's voted against it. I would also point out that there is an active negotiation currently on the matter of student nurses between the government and the unions. So this bill, and that, that was noted in this debate, so it could easily mean that there will be some outcome on that. So between the nature of the bill and the fact there are those negotiations going on, obviously something the government wasn't going to uh, go with. And the government seems to realise that there was a little bit of a PR trap here and amended the bill instead of voting against it because technically they voted for it. But uh, that doesn't seem to have actually
1: worked. Uh, I, I know it's not really to the point, but can I just mention that if you look at healthcare expenditure, right, in, the, in Europe... Uh, per, ha- per inhabitant. In 2018, healthcare expenditure here was around 4, €4,600, right? Whereas the average EU spend was just a touch under €3,000. So our, our spending on healthcare is, per head, of inha- per head, per capita, is 50% higher than the EU average. There are Denmark, Luxembourg, Sweden and Germany are ahead of us in spending on healthcare, Germany is ahead of us by I don't know a couple of dollars, basically. But that's it. The, the Austria, Netherlands, Belgium, France, Finland, all the way down to Romania, God love them. Um, even the United Kingdom are behind us on spending on healthcare. Now, I'm not saying that the healthcare system in Ireland is perfect or well managed, but the notion that the, the core problem about healthcare in Ireland is spending, I just think is simple When you look at the comparative outcomes in other countries, it's not about money. It's about the way we spend money. And we know that. It's not a great mystery. The
0: system is broadly dysfunctional, which is why I think we should simply have a one-tier healthcare system, Michael, and privatise the entire thing. All insurance based. I don't care. Just privatise the entire
1: thing. The Swiss have something like that, I think, do they?
0: There's Actually, I'm being mostly facetious here, although it would solve the problem. But there are countries that do have an actual one-tier system, which is private and mostly insurance-based and can work quite well. But I think the important thing to note, Michael, is that, well, it could hardly be fucking worse, could it? I mean, people say, well, if it's private healthcare, people won't have access to healthcare. And you look at the amount of, let's say, children who are waiting... You know, five years, three years, however many years for, let's say, treatments for scoliosis. And go, yes, God, can you imagine if those people couldn't access healthcare for reasons of money, as opposed to now you just can't access it at all? Unless you have enough money to go outside the country, in which case no one is going to let their child suffer through that. Which effectively means that there would be no real difference other than uh, at least it would be honest. And probably better because we get to fire a lot of people who mm-hmm. really don't have any purpose being there. Getting a real graph of firing people in the uh, health service, Michael.
1: But yeah, just firing people generally. No, I think there should be you know, a
0: fair appraisal of people and they should be asked what they actually do here and if they could be replaced by a mop or a bucket of soap then they should be fired apart from janitorial staff who obviously we couldn't apply that standard to and they do a, an integral job
1: they actually do a job
0: yes they do that that is more than, but I just, I just wanted to bring this up because i was curious why the government had voted against it because i went okay maybe there are fiscal concerns and then i went that's, that's never stopped us before
1: no and,
0: I mean, if it stopped us before he, this year, it certainly hasn't fucking stopped us this year.
1: In fact, I, I was wondering, I was talking to somebody about this, who would be a fairly sort of balanced person on, on, on spending issues, usually fairly prudential in his approach. And his comment was, for God's sake, if all—if it's only a question of giving the training nurses a few quid, considering, and this is his quote, which I enjoy, he said, considering the crowd at the moment, they're spending money like... They're throwing around money like snuff it awake. It surely wouldn't cost that much to give, them, give the students if you could. But plainly, this bill was not simply about that. The bill was about making the headline about student nurses to make the government look bad, which is fine. That's the job of the opposition. And it uh, work.
0: worked perfectly.
1: And it, it worked for perfectly. I, if you looked on social media, nobody was mentioning the. I'm always, I'm always fascinated about this thing of parity of esteem. How do you do that? How does the government go around training and everybody into having the same level of esteem for everybody? That's that. That must be a that'll be a tricky one to execute.
0: I don't know because I'm familiar with parity of esteem when people are talking about mental health issues, but less so when related to industrial or HR issues. It's just not my area. I assume it does actually mean something as opposed to just being feel good text.
1: Yeah, I think you might be being a bit optimistic there. The, the way the, the, the phrase really became current here was in the in the Good Friday, the Belfast Agreement, where there had to be parity of esteem between uh, cultural institutions or other institutions, between nationalists and unionists. So, for example, so there was parity of esteem on the language issue. So Irish would receive a certain amount of backing, Gaelic culture, language, that kind of stuff. But at the same that meant that there was also large amounts of money made available for Scots, Ulster Scots, on the basis that they were having parity of esteem and that Ulster Scots was a was a was actually a language that people spoke. And I often regretted that I couldn't manage to find some way because there were pots of money and nobody to take it up, because frankly, it was all a little bit of a joke. But if you anybody if you'd managed to get a decent proposal together I I, I I have a fairly strong reason to believe that if you went up to the appropriate office and say, listen, I'm going to do this, like, here, take the money, for God's sake. We desperately need to be able to report that we did something with this.
0: Actually, speaking of uh, of fiscal matters, did you see the Fiscal Advisory Council pop up on Tuesday and sort of go, yeah, we, we've analysed the recent budget. And um, yeah, it's got 8.5 billion euros of permanent spending that the government hasn't explained how they will pay for. Mm -hmm. And I mean, haven't explained at all because, and then they give this explanation of the borrowing environment is really good. And you know, there's potential there to borrow. And then they just sort of go, but they haven't said they're going to borrow. They actually haven't said how they're going to pay for this at all. (laughs) Then you have all the COVID stuff on top of this. So we just, we'd kind of like to know how we're paying for this. nine billion in um money that we're just not even sure they realize they're spending
1: yes <laughs> it's, not, it's not in an economy but and a budget the size of the world, eight billion quid is it's not a substantial amount of money and it's the thing about it was that i thought was curious was that it's permanent spending so this is not covid this is not covid related spending it's permanent spending it's at uh, uh, as i said there's Nothing to suggest that they uh they have a plan whether they're going to go to the markets whether they're going to go and borrow in thirty years, get I, I, issue thirty year bonds or something or if they're going to increase taxation or what they're going to do.
0: Yeah, I did like the um the chairperson of the council described the describing the the issue that the spending a cause. Said it would create, I believe the phrase was a bit of a hole in the public finances. <laughs>
1: God, that is restrained.
0: And otherwise said, um, what was it? The increase in the permanent spending is um, surprisingly large, and there is limited transparency on large portions of the increases.
1: Limited transparency.
0: Mm. Yeah, yeah. Occasionally, I do really like the fiscal, uh, the, the advisory board, the um, the fiscal advisory council. They uh, they occasionally pop up and sort of go, "That's all fantastic," but how are we actually? Paying for this, and then we all ignore them, and then next year—I mean, just just our willingness to pop up year after year and go. Mm-hmm. But again, how are we paying for this? Is uh, I find you know it's it's a it's a Sisyphean task, Michael, and I can only imagine that they have found happiness in it.
1: <laughs> I don't know. It, there is that. There's a there's a slightly plaintive tone to it as well, isn't there? Sorry, I I, I don't want to be a bother. I I I know I asked before. And you said, you get, I, I know you're busy. I understand. It's a terrible time. You must be very busy. But you know that money, that 8 billion. So have you had to think about how you might be? No, no. You'll get back to me. Okay, great. Listen, send me an email. You have my, yeah, great. You have my, my yeah, you have my cell. Fire fire me on a text send me an email whenever you get the chance it's
0: always so hopeful as well it's always so now in the accounts you know you don't go into you know where that's coming from or, or how it's going to be funded now obviously there is a plan to fund it but we just like some increased transparency so you know we can really we stand over it with confidence if you could just release that i mean you know we'd be happy to have a look at it and make sure everything is correct. And we we you know we've no we no fear it isn't, but you know, sometimes it's just good to, to see the figures because obviously you wouldn't spend an additional ten, you know, or eight to nine or ten billion euro with absolutely no plan as to where that money would come from, because that would be yeah that would be reckless, nearly beyond belief. So, you know, we just think it should be released so that everyone can see it. Every year. Every year they do it. And every year they still sound as hopeful that there's actually a fucking plan. <laughs> I mean, I think there's lessons we can take there, Michael, just for how to you know how to live a happy life, like a content
1: life. From that, well, yes, it's, it's just to be a little bit more stoic, a bit like yourself, Gary, I suppose. But I I don't hold much I don't hold that much hope that they they're going to get a whole lot of satisfaction at least in the short term.
0: Mm speaking of of stoicism and you know the ability to just take slings and arrows uh, i understand or you were telling me that people have gotten into a bit of a tizzy about some negative comments about ireland
1: oh god yeah you know we have we are i think we were fundamentally insecure about ourselves aren't we it's it's one of our least attractive qualities we're so desperate for people to like us i remember we we, we because my my sister studied german we had German friends coming and going because she did exchanges. And we knew there were German tourists around here. So we used to talk to Germans about and One of the things that German tourists back in the, the late 70s, or early 80s, constantly would say they loved Ireland because they would, because people seemed to be nice to them here. And people seemed to be genuinely happy that they were here. And I think because a lot of Germany, German tourists had, had the experience, shall we say, after 1945, possibly before that as well, I don't know, that they weren't always the most popular people uh, when they went on their holidays down to the Italian lakes or down to the uh, the Costa del Sol or wherever it might be. But as far as we're concerned, foreigners were coming here and they seemed to enjoy the place. How wonderful. Any little bit of a comment at all. So we, 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 we react excessively well, excessively to to compliments. We just puffed it. Uh, but then, if somebody says something negative, anyway, Matthew Price, who is the head bottle washer of a thing called Cloud Fair, quite a big company. He apparently is a billionaire, but sure, these days, you know, all these—I mean, you know, Jeff Bezos probably looks. God, he must be living in the vert in penury. If you're only got a few billion, anyway. He was uh, on Twitter and he's, he's, he came out with a statement, "I wish you no oh. ill will." Now Cloudfair actually have a couple of or, or, organized a couple of operations here in Dublin and, and in Cork, and he said, "I wish you no will, but I'd be realistic about your strengths and weaknesses. You are not a very welcoming community to outsiders. The weather and food suck. Hopefully you can fix two and three, and then maybe global warming is your friend.
0: <laughs> he sounds like a fun guy.
1: <laughs> well, you know. Um, he's a, he's a problem solver, obviously. You know, he said you can fix the friendliness, you can fix the we- the food. Now, the weather. Let's hope the global warming, as it's as he says, maybe global warming can can fix the uh, the, the the problem. Yeah, so,
0: Michael, it's it's a tech CEO bantering with someone on Twitter. Uh, why why do we care about it? though?
1: Uh, sorry, can I just also say that he's not he didn't back down. You know the way we're so used to people in. Not just in tech, but all, all, all in all corporate types, but especially tech. When they say things like this, they then run for cover and apolog- scattering apologies and abnegation as they go. <laughs> Matthew Prince, sorry, not, I said Price. I think Matthew Prince didn't do that. He responded to somebody: "Your local mascot is a short guy in green trousers who tries to trick people with the promise of gold they'll never find." <laughs> Very welcoming.
0: <laughs> this all seems in good fun.
1: You know, I would think. But oh God, people have been uh, not not taking it well. um Some people pointed out that in the United States there were some people who were a little bit overweight. Uh, square that one, little. F- <laughs> Sorry. Okay, I'll, I'm quoting here. You say the food in Ireland is shit. All the fat C words are in the United States, though. And that's not actually true, because speaking as a fat person myself, but there are fat people in Ireland too. Square that one, little fat fairy. I don't know what that's about, but square that one, little fat fairy. Food in shot restaurants is shot in every country. Spend some money. You think good food is wimpies. I'm curious that his choice of Wimpy's, I don't, do you, have you ever heard of Wimpy's, Gary? I've never heard of Wimpy's. You see, it's a, it's a generational thing. Wimpy's is a burger chain, burger bars, they used to call them. And they're actually an English company, not American at all, which was set up in the United Kingdom as a response to McDonald's. When, the, Mac, when the, the McDonald's and others came in. like If you're looking for an American burger place, I would have thought McDonald's, Burger King, Wendy's, if Wendy's still goes, I don't know if Wendy's, whatever. White Castle, something like that would have been a good one. Wimpy's, he's kind of missed the mark there. But people are very annoyed.
0: This, this was reported in some of the
1: newspapers, wasn't it? Uh, Matthew Prince also says, no one wants to live in Ireland unless they're Irish. Lisbon is easy to attract people, but that assumed the government wasn't incompetent, so perhaps we're looking around again. That's not, you know, that's, that's a bit of a cut at, at Portugal there. I don't know if anybody noticed. It's not great. I'm not,
0: I'm not sure it's wrong, but I, I saw this. I saw this on the Independent, News Talk, Radio Nova... And all I could think is just, who cares? I mean, if he's right, he's right. And if he's not right, he's wrong. And why do you care anyway?
1: Well, exactly. And, you know, if somebody says this, I think the first reaction of a reason would be, it's not to say that you aren't annoyed when people say uncomplimentary oh, things about you know, your country, because there you know, we have an attachment to the place, of course. So. But a reasonable thing would be to say, well... Uh, does he have a point? Because if he has a point about some stuff that is making Ireland less attractive as a place to live, well then um, we should we should look at see if we can correct that. I thought he had made a reference, but maybe it wasn't him. But somebody else in the tech firm did also point out the high living costs in Ireland, particularly in Dublin. And if you look at say accommodation costs in Ireland as a in comparison to other cities of its size in the rest of the OECD, Dublin is not is an expensive place. Dublin has become an expensive place to live. Public transport, if you're not driving, isn't expensive. Driving is expensive. Fuel is expensive here. Taxation is expensive. Cars are expensive. If you if you're in tech in, and you're earning good money, uh, marginal tax rates here hit uh, the highest rates hit in fairly early, and you're going to be paying. A fair chunk of your dollars, your dollars or your euros in taxation. So, and that's not a small problem for these kinds of business. We need to be able to attract the kind of people that could pretty well go anywhere to work. Gary, you know these are the new the new cosmopolitans. If they want to work in Dublin, they can choose to work here, but they can work in Paris, or they can work in in Berlin, or they can work in Munich or Frankfurt, or they can work in Milan or Shanghai. If it comes to that, so. We have to be aware of it. No, we're not very welcoming. I think that's probably just... I would like to know what his basis for that was. Did he have a couple of unpleasant experiences? He seems to be a Fort Wright kind of a man, you know, a blunt speaker. He may have been trenchant in his comments in a pub or a restaurant in Dublin, and maybe they didn't react with the graciousness that he expected. But I would point out that historically... You know uh, you're aware that portfolio do a, uh, a survey every year of tourists coming into the con- leaving the country. You know, when as you're, as you're in the departures part of the airports, they really hand out these surveys to people and they ask them about their experience, the their, their positivity of their experience in the country. And what was the thing that they most enjoyed? Now, a few years ago, for the first, every year, for year after year after year, the thing that people gave the highest level, reported level of satisfaction with, and the reason they found Ireland a pleasant place to have a holiday, was the people. It wasn't the countryside, it wasn't the food, it wasn't the drink, it wasn't the quality of the hotels, etc., although Irish hotels are good. It was the people. Now, a few years ago, for the first time ever, we dropped off that drop, which was concerning. Because, you know what, Gary, the, the weather is shit. And anybody getting upset about te- someone telling us that the weather is shit really needs to, you know, they, they need to spend time in, on a holiday in somewhere other than the highlands of Scotland or Iceland. The weather is shit. You know, it, we, you get used to it. But it's it, the weather in the south of Italy, the south of Spain, it, it's, it's better. So it's important for us that people like us from the tourist perspective. Now, that went back up. I don't know what the last couple of years were. But generally speaking, when people report on this, when people do, people like Lonely Planet do surveys, Condé Nast do surveys. And we regularly come up as hospitable, friendly and welcoming. So I think probably off the mark there.
0: Well, I, I, I would make the point that a lot of people I've talked to who came over here who are foreign make the point that Irish people have a really high level of initial warmth, but do tend to comment that it can be very difficult to get past the sort of acquaintance level with Irish people, that we can be quite clicky. So maybe, I mean, if you're looking at bringing over a workforce, maybe that's something that would be more prevalent. I mean, on stories like this, Michael, I don't really see the the point of debating whether or not he is correct, because ultimately it's, it's not a major concern for me while it may be for Fulcher, Ireland. But every time these stories come up, I just have this sort of internal stop it. Like, it's kind of cringy the way... Anytime someone says something nice about us, we are so delighted with it. And you see it in sporting events.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. We went to France,
0: and we're like, oh, we're the best fans in the world. And then someone says something terrible, and suddenly it becomes... it's reported in the newspapers. And it just, it kind of just makes me think that the country is deeply insecure.
1: I I think that's true. I have have long thought that we are, we seem to be desperate for approval. I don't know if it's some kind of a long psychic hangover from Empire.
0: There is a little bit of kind of doffing the cap to it. And then when they don't like you, you get insulted because they should like you. You've tried so hard. But I think we as a country, bar the golden years of the Hockey term, there's been a deep insecurity about the country.
1: Yeah. yeah. You you, you go... The English, for example. The English, I think, have many admirable qualities. I think one of them is, they don't really care. You know, you like me, you like us, you don't like us. Yeah. Kind of your problem, isn't it, mate? Mm -hmm. We like us. Well... Generally speaking, we like us, uh, there and are, there are, in every country, particularly, you're going to have a strata in the least which hates its own country, but they don't care. And I think a country that, a country that's a, sort of at peace with itself, just, I hate to use that phrase mature, because it's one of those words used far too often by columnists in the Irish Times, we won't mention names, we have to be grown up and mature. But it is true. It's We have this, the level of response... It's nice when people are nice about you. Of course it is. And we should be. It's perfectly normal that we're pleased when people say nice things about us. And when those nice things turn into business and they help us in tourism or they help us in any other area of of trade or business, then that's a good thing. We should be happy. On the other hand, when one guy comes along and says something else, if we saw a string of people coming out with saying similar things, but then I think we we should start to pay maybe a little bit more attention. Say, well, we maybe have a problem here.
0: I mean, yeah, you get a string of people saying there are problems with your country that may interfere with uh, you know, it's, its it's attractiveness to business or to academia or to workers or to whatever, maybe. One person saying on Twitter, and a person who seems to have quite a good sense of humour, does it should not lead to multiple stories in papers of note
1: do you not get the sense that you know that this this is a guy who may be well trolling a whole country trolling a whole country trolling 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 along, trolling 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 tro- trolling. trolling yes, yes. trolling that, that's what, lives what under the a bridge. call it michael i'm trying to remember what, jesus my, what lives under a, a bridge trolls 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 trolling yes sorry
0: well that may be offensive i would prefer to say michael that individuals involved in the uh overseeing transit over small maritime areas.
1: <laughs> with particular problems with billy goats.
0: Yes. Yes, I think that would be more offensive. But again, I just... And the only... I, I realise that we should ourselves not be talking about it, but I just want to take this time to say, stop. Just stop. Let people say what they want. And don't take offence, because why would you be bothered by it?
1: I, I did say... I. I, I... The, a very curious thing. This, this story was reported in The Independent, and there's a story that uh, describes it, and then describes all the people saying that they live here and they're foreigners and they like it and all that. Right, almost the fourth last line, third last line of the piece, just by itself. A spokesman for Cloudfair declined to comment Mr. Prince's remark. Last week, Mr. Prince sold 10.5 million of his shares. Oh. <laughs> What's that got to do with anything? Um, it's interesting to know, Mr. Prince, maybe he saw a painting he wanted to buy or a horse or something. But <laughs> in the middle of absolutely nowhere, last week, Mr. Prince sold 10.5 million of his shares. There you go. Anyway, it is what it is. And... Uh,
0: God, it's why, I, it's why I hope we never get to another, to the anywhere near the finals of another international sporting championship. Because we can't, we can't have another Paris, Michael.
1: No, no, not another Paris.
0: Never again.
1: Anyway, the Americans say it on. for
0: nine eleven. I say it for sporting events. I think we're balanced.
1: <laughs> okay, never again.
0: So two other things. One, I wanted to just touch on briefly. In the last show, we were talking about the the judgment on Tavistock Clinic, and I wrote an article for Grip on it, where yes. I went into, I thought a, quite a fair bit of detail on what the judgment said and why it said it, and what the case actually revolved around which was the issue of consent and, and when a child can give uh, consent and how that should be understood. Yeah. And I was, I was waiting to see where else it would be reported just to see how it was reported because I expected pretty one-sided. So the two pieces I've seen, and it's possible there's others and I just haven't seen them, was a piece in RTE and a piece in the Irish Times. So, Michael, it's time for our favorite form of inside baseball where we look at articles other places have done and then explain why they're bad and we're better.
1: There should be a theme tune for this bit. There should
0: be. So we'll start with Ortiz because Ortiz was pretty um pretty bad overall actually. And it, there's a couple of reasons why it's bad. It's it's bad just as general reporting, because it, it doesn't explain anything about the case. It's it's about seven or eight hundred words long. And yeah. you'll get to the end of it and there are many words, but you still won't understand why what happened happened so it explains that the the court said it was doubtful that uh, 14 and 15 year olds would be able to weigh the long-term risks and consequences of uh taking puberty blockers but it doesn't explain what the case was about it doesn't explain how it was gotten to that it doesn't explain anything that was done and that would be fine if it was a short article but it's a long article that fails to bring these things in but what i found was interesting is who they went and they talked to so they talked to a barrister in england who is a well-known progressive barrister who's very involved in trying to stop Brexit and has worked on transgender rights cases before on a very particular side. Mm-hmm. Then they talked to the mother of a transgender 14-year-old who had filed legal action against Tavistock because their waiting times were too long. And then they talked to the policy director at Mermaids, which is a transgender charity headed by a woman who who brought her child over to, I think, Thailand eh, when they were 16 to get uh, genital surgery. And mermaids are mermaids are pretty out there. They're out there enough that they started to kind of, the last year is not being good for them, and now they're trying to kind of walk their way backwards.
1: They were the, the agency of first resort for a lot of state agencies in the UK for e- education on this issue, but that they seem to have lost that i think recently so three sources all of
0: whom absolutely only on one side and then when they explain things they or they don't actually contextualize them or mention them in the case so they say that the case comes as increasing number of adolescents globally seek to change gender which is perfectly true dividing those who fear doctors are too hasty in prescribing puberty blockers and cross-sex hormones, and those worried about access to medication they deem life-saving. Now, that was something the court looked at, and the court talked about in their judgment, as I mentioned in the Gricht article, but they don't mention that, and I would suspect they don't mention it because the court said there was no evidence base for uh, these medicines having any efficiency or being life-saving. In fact, and I found thought this was, I don't think we mentioned this in the, the previous piece, Michael, but the Tavistock said it had some research on this, that it had been collating. And the court asked them, would they show it to them? And they said, well, it hasn't been peer-reviewed. And the court said, well, that wouldn't stop us from viewing it. We'd be happy to view non-peer-reviewed material as it's drawn f- directly from your clinical experiences. Yes. And Tavistock never submitted the document. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: So Tavistock, say they have research on this that they wouldn't show in a trial in which they were defending themselves. Mm -hmm. Which would indicate the results of that research might not be terribly positive. And there's there's tons of stuff like this. But this is in the judgment. If Ortey read the judgment, they know it's in the judgment. But they don't tell you it's in the judgment. So you get to the end of it. And nothing they say is incorrect, or nothing they say is untrue.
1: Sorry, but I just just to con- to contextualise the the issue around suicide suicide is that this is a this is a big issue in the United States, where prominent supporters of the uh, of, aff- of affirm the affirmation approach to transgender and to using uh, puberty blockers, etc. When they have told parents who have concerns that, and this has become. Uh, part of the language in, in the debate in the United States. That so if, if in situations like this, you have a choice. You have a choice. You can choose between having a transgender child are not having a child at all and it's been it's it's it's, it's phrased as bodily that so the, this the threat of suicide has become a, a, this dark shadow which is cast over over this issue and naturally if you phrase a situation like that parents uh, it's going to be a terrifying prospect for parents that if they that that potentially that something they do or something they fail to do could lead to the death of their child and that would be a uh, horrific
0: yeah and I mean that was part of why the court looked at it in so detail and why I think it It's so devastating to have a high court of England come back and say, there's no evidence base for what you are claiming. You have no proof that this improves life outcomes. You don't have it. Or if you have it, you haven't showed it to us. Um, Actually, this area has one of my favorite misrepresented stats, Michael. Yeah. Uh, It's about detransitioners, which are people who have uh, transitioned from one sex to the other. And have then have gone back the other way, and I think this is from the Tavistock Clinic, although I'm not entirely sure. It's from one of the gender identity clinics, uh, but it could be an American one. And they were asked how many children would um, would detransition who had gone through uh, puberty blockers and then cross-sex hormones, and they gave a figure of I think about one percent or below one percent. Yes. And then they were later asked to explain how they got into that figure, and they'd gotten to that figure. And it wasn't people who had detransitioned it is people who had detransitioned and continued to deal with the organisation. Yes. Which would be rather vanishingly small because if you've decided to detransition, you probably have, shall we say, some pointed views about the people who enabled the initial transition. Mm Mm-hmm. And you would be therefore unlikely to continue working with them.
1: Well, this is a point that's been made by a number of people who are concerned about this. I was reading, uh, there was a report uh, which I read there recently, which was a, a man who had been working in the area of adults. He'd been in a clinic dealing with uh adult uh transitioners. And he said that one of the, the curious things about the area was that people who detransitioned, they were like a null set. They the, the data seemed to be non-existent. They'd fallen into a void. There was nothing about them. So he tried to do some research on... The the clients that had worked with his organization and his conclusion was that around 25%, sorry, 27% of those people had actually detransitioned. Now, we're talking about adult detransitioners, detransitioning here. Um, The belief is amongst a number of experts that when you're talking about children, that that number could be very significantly higher because... Before the recent, shall we, what we what is now called in some quarters sudden onset gender dysphoria, you other know, there's children that had not previously behaved in a non gender traditional fashion, developing anxieties or, uh, about their gender identity in their say their the period of their their pubescent prepubescent pubescent period, that the studies had shown that children who displayed uh, who 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 reported anxiety about their their gender identity and expressed a desire to transition or to change, to be the other gender, that somewhere between 70, 80, up to, depending on the reporting, up to 90% of those, by the time they got into their early 20s, their desire to transition to the other gender had resolved itself. And in the great majority of cases, they had just became adults who identified as gay, gay men or gay women. So... If that was to be the case, then there might be a concern that that would reflect itself, therefore, in people who've gone through transition and then found that those things, those worries or those anxieties or those issues that had caused them to desire to be the other gender, they felt would re- those problems which would resolve with transitioning had not resolved and therefore they would feel that they would, they wanted to desist or to detransition. So it's a very important piece of it's it's we need an awful lot more research on this and that's one of the things that comes again and again and again. We don't have enough understanding of this, we don't have enough research. Because you're dealing historically with very small populations, it's hard to get high quality research on it. But certainly it again again we find that one of the problems is that people who do detransition cut off all their contacts with the with the organizations that had been involved in their transitioning. I mean
0: makes sense why would you want to be involved with them again
1: yeah absolutely what are they going to do for you
0: and then so that's that's ortiz one it's perfectly correct but it strips contextual and additional information from the piece in a manner which i think if you read it on the assumption that you are someone reading this to be more informed about the issue you don't at the end of this know anything else about the issue it also doesn't do what i did when i wrote my piece in which i try and do with most pieces which is linked to the full judgment itself, because then you kind of go, look, if you if you're interested, here's the entire
1: thing. It's forty pages long. Gary, not to be picky, but they went to three people, who shall we say are on one side of the debate. If you're a national broadcaster, which is dedicated to reporting the news in a fair and impartial fashion, Georgey is. Then it seems to me that with fairly basic journalistic practice, if you're going to talk to three people to comment on the judgment, then. You'd seek out somebody who had a different, who was on the other side of the debate, who perhaps would have welcomed the judgment and get their perspective on it. At least one person.
0: Like the LGB Alliance or groups like that. Because there are many feminist groups, particularly out there, who are interested in
1: this. Or if you, if you wanted an Irish context, there's another article in The Independent Today, which I think people might have a look at as you, on this subject. Uh, again, interesting and well-written by Stella McCart. Stella O'Malley. Uh, who has written on the subject before. She's a psychiatrist. And I think her. She's in, she has an informed and interesting perspective on it. They could have talked to her. Uh, but there are lots of people. There are lots of people out there that they could have talked to. But they, they chose not to. And they did choose not to. It's not that these people wouldn't talk to them. One thing I, I will
0: note, the RTE report and the Irish Times report are very, very similar. Now, the Irish Times report comes from uh, Reuters Foundation, and the RTE report doesn't have any uh doesn't have any author on it but also doesn't say it came from a third party source but the rte part has additional information on it but it uses the same quotes and the same phrasing in a lot of areas mm-hmm. as rte so i think what might have happened here is that it uh, took the piece from reuters and rte took the piece from reuters and rewrote small sections of it and went to different sources which is interesting because then they that's additional effort to remove contextual information yeah so for instance the it report mentions things like there has been nearly 30 fold rise in child referrals to the clinic in the last decade mhm doesn't uh, doesn't mention that it also now even the it piece says that puberty blockers are fully reversible that was also dealt with the court doesn't give that information but then if they just if they just paid for it from Reuters, it's hard enough to complain because they technically didn't write it.
1: Sorry, they said or they they said that someone claimed that puberty blockers were fully reversible? So
0: what they say is the World Professional Association for Transgender Health, a global body of doctors specialised in treating trans people, describes puberty blockers as fully reversible.
1: I know that is not the position of a number of other professional medical bodies.
0: No, and it was a position that the court went into at some length and where they said that they don't think that that should be the view. But it is interesting, like, nothing on any of these stories, and I'll put a link to these two and, and my one, nothing in any of these stories is incorrect as far as I can see. They're all perfectly factually incorrect, or factually correct, one would hope, mm. but you would reach, you would read all three of them and come to very different understandings of what had actually happened I, of course, think mine is the best because it draws the most from the actual document. Mm -hmm. But uh, obviously I would be biased in that. A little bit. You know, I I think I I can rise above such things, Michael. Well, it's important that you think that. Also, I didn't go to anyone for quotes. I just read the entirety of the 40-page judgment and pulled out the relevant bits. (laughs) Because I thought that was just better for people than going to various charities and going, what do you think about this? And then what do you think about this? Because what they think about it doesn't really fucking matter. What matters is what the court actually said. But maybe I'm just an old-fashioned kind of man, and analogue man, Michael, in a digital world.
1: <laughs> I don't think there's much analogue about you, Gary, but anyway.
0: And saving the best for last, Michael, we have a new NGO which has been launched to fight against the far right in Ireland. Its name means togetherness in French, but Michael? No, it doesn't.
1: It means... (laughs) (laughs) You God, he set an elephant trap and I fell into it. What does it mean, Michael? It means together in Irish. It's because you've been listening to songs in old French, Gary. You're getting confused. It's,
0: you know, those old French covers of House of the Rising Sun. I just can't get enough, Michael. But I think the point still stands, Michael, because isn't there something to be taken from... uh, Calling your group togetherness in a language that nearly no one in the country speaks.
1: But you certainly don't. I like the title in the journals. The journals article on it, it says, "New anti-fascist alliance to stand Leicale against rise of far right in Ireland."
0: I'm waiting for the journal to just go the full way. And just retitled that to bastards getting what is due to them. Yeah, I mean we know they want it.
1: You know uh, how do we how do you say this without, of course, immediately becoming oneself far right or alt right or alt right adjacent or something? But the far right, Gary, I'm fairly sure that if you took one of the larger hotels in Dublin and got one of the rooms they use for weddings. You could fit the far right into it.
0: I mean the far right in Ireland, Michael, is about ten lads, some dogs, a couple of masks, and a shed full of tiki torches.
1: For a start, a lot of those groups that they would identify as far right because they are they hold particular views on certain social issues. Should I say, if you actually go and talk to them, you'll find a tremendous amount of lefty nonsense coming out of them. Uh, there was a move. There, there's legislation passed in Europe. Was it recently talking about making certain things illegal, certain funding for for politics on, on the far right illegal, but nothing about the far left. We have people in the Dáil who, under any reasonable definition, if uh, say the Workers' Party was on the left, then these people would be somewhere on somewhere on the far left. But the far right, have there is there a, is there a councillor, is there a county councillor in Ireland that would fit on? I. Suppose, Listen, I suppose if you ask the journal, would would the would the Healy Rays be far right? Is is Matty McGrath far right? Possibly, I I don't know. I I what what does it mean? Okay, let's trying to be reasonable about it. What do you think when these people use the phrase far right? What do they understand that phrase to mean?
0: I I was trying to pull this together, and I was going through their their website and looking at the people they say are far right and trying to find the commonality. And there's two things I notice. One is authoritarianism. That's on most of them. And two, that they wouldn't be liked by upstanding members of the NGO community. I mean, they've got people on there who are definitely authoritarian, but not really right-wing. They just have fallen out, maybe, with some of the left-wing in their own countries.
1: Yeah, I, I noticed that one of the groups... Involved in the alliance, which is made up of a number of social justice organisations, several of which, I'm quoting here, several of which were involved in the repeal of the Eighth Movement. So I'm wondering, does that mean that people who are on the other, on the keep the Eighth Movement, are they? Should we, should we cons- believe that they are barring other evidence far right? Well,
0: we know who is on the list, Michael. Uh, several of the groups involved in this are the same groups who signed on to that letter with amnesty in the National Women's Council of Ireland. So gender critical and LGB groups, they're far right.
1: Well, I, I I, have heard, I have seen people on social media refer to the LGB Alliance as far right, which, oh, it, it really does start to beg your belief when you actually talk to some of these people and read what they say and look at their history. Defining them as being on the far right is, it's the kind of reach around that really will dislocate several disks. I don't know how you're going to, manage it but they do it's just empty anti-fascist how many fascists do we have in the country also by the way Gary authoritarianism yes that seems to be one of the things that's cute it's like they seem to pretend that there is no authoritarianism on the left not a thing as a left-wing authoritarian
0: no such a thing could never happen I would say authoritarianism is only in the governments they point at not in like gender critical groups. They don't have the numbers to be authoritarian even if they wanted to. Sure you know, my favorite thing about the group so far is Michael other than the fact that it's it's I mean Ireland clearly needed another NGO which I have no doubt at some point will acquire state funding if it doesn't have it. And actually considering a lot of the members are state funded themselves yeah. if there's any money going to this group from its members it is effectively state funded. Um so its name how is its name pronounced? Lecela 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 So Big thing on the left is, you know, taking note of your privilege and, you know, helping those less fortunate than you, Michael, and keeping, you know, balancing the victim hierarchy.
1: Yes, of course.
0: So, did you know there's, a, there's a, an NGO in Ireland um, called La already? Is that something
1: to do with families,
0: family support or It's, it's a mentoring and youth justice support service. So, it's from, it was established in 2005 to prevent mentoring service to children engaged in probation. right. So, you're dealing with mostly, I would expect, because it does a lot of work in Limerick, you're dealing with people from very poor families who have been uh, in, so we say, a bit of legal trouble. Right. So, they've been doing their work for 15 years, you know, helping out in the community, building people up, but, uh, and then these people just come along and we're like, we like your name, you're done. (laughs) I love that. Yeah, it's a good name, which I think, Michael, might be quite a display of privilege from the people comprising this consortium. No, I mean you've you've all the the normal. I like the fact they have extinction rebellion Ireland. That's a good one.
1: Oh God, because they're not a bit authoritarian.
0: No, they're not extreme in any way. No,
1: no. But then again, Gary, when you have a group which is supported by Christy Moore, Damien Dempsey, and Vincent Brown, you know it's hard. You're going to be hard set to oppose it. I mean,
0: I I particularly liked to see uh, you know, the, the group talks about the risk of fascist violence and things like that. And one of the groups supporting them is Sinn Fein because violence is wrong.
1: Yeah, I remember in one, one of the there were the, one of the clashes with these far right groups? And by again, there's a lovely a lovely line here. Uh, in the the far right organisations have been present at a number of anti lockdown demonstrations in recent months, at least one of which ended in violence, and a Garda investigation into the alleged assault. Of counter protester. So I'm I'm counting there one which ended in violence and an alleged assault. God Gary, it's like crystal knocked all over again.
0: Was a window broken?
1: Well no no windows were broken, but you know, there could have been. Buswells was there, Buswells has windows, there could have been.
0: I feel I feel for something to be akin to crystal knock, at least one window has to be broken.
1: Do you remember we we were looking at photographs from from that from one of those which I I think I I don't know if it was specific the the one where they, the the assault occurred or the one that previous to that where a group which was described as being of the far right was involved. One of the groups was was it what's it called? Sayre Sayre? Anyway, it's the political hey, sayre. Yeah. Do you remember the murder of that young woman, that jur- journalist in the North of Ireland? Sayre Sayre, something like that. Yeah. And this is and there was a, a one of these re- renegade Republican organizations was.
0: I do. I I remember seeing many of their people down in front of the doll with a number of these uh, number of state funded NGOs.
1: Yeah, they were standing beside troker If I remember, I, I right. do believe
0: it was Troker because I remember going to Troker with uh, questions about how they they felt about this group, but
1: I can't remember if I
0: got any answers for that.
1: And strangely, to my knowledge, I don't, I haven't heard of any of the many far-right organizations engaged in the murder of journalists.
0: Like they're working the way slowly.
1: Well, slowly, slowly but surely.
0: Very slowly at this point.
1: You know, if Lekela had been in Germany, maybe in the late 20s, everything would have been different. Maybe that's the point. You have to get in there early, Jerry. You have to get in and nip, nip it in the bud.
0: I like the way they talk about the far right. Like we've come together to challenge the growth of the far right, who in recent months have begun to organise in our communities and on our streets across Ireland, north and south. And it's the problem I think of. Um, we have a resource a resource uh, shortage in Ireland, Michael. We just we don't have the number of Nazis needed to sustain an NGO population of this size. We need some sort of rationing system where each one can just, through media amplification, become worth many other fascists. But there is, you know the tone from these people constantly of, this is such a dangerous movement and it's gaining so much ground. One, it's not, frankly. And two, people like strong horses. So if you don't like them, maybe you shouldn't spend so much of your time going around talking about how terribly well organised they are and how dangerous they are, because a kind of Kukuma cross, Michael, is energetic and full of purpose.
1: Yeah, I think it's they. They want to. Uh, what's the f- the phrase that we want to stand up to people? We want to. We won't be divided on this. This is what standing up to elements of the far. Right. The far right is so powerful, and they're so weak that they have to. St- But they're going to be courageous, Gary, and they're going to stand up to these people. They
0: they say they plan to resist the far right and stand in solidarity uh, with those that the far right seeks to target. And it gives a full list. And that goes, we abhor all forms of discrimination, which is one of those word usages that annoys me. To discriminate merely means to choose between different things. So if you say, I don't like the fair right, you are making a discriminatory choice against the fair right by the actual meaning of the word. So if you're saying we will stop a political force from growing, don't hate discrimination and you don't hate division. You just don't like that group. And it's a really minor thing. And I know I will get people saying that's not the way they mean it. And I know that. But words have meanings, Michael.
1: Well, do they, Gary? Or does the text on the text does not exist anymore. If- well,
0: it depends how much power I have to influence people. So Michael if I, if I tell people words have meanings and I am considered to have enough influence then those words will have meaning because people will believe what I say and therefore it will be true of them as well and therefore we establish a commonality of meaning. So yes if I just say it and believe it eventually words will have meaning at least in my own social bubble and really that's the important one.
1: Well listen. Uh, ultimately, at the end, of, you know, if a bunch of people want to get together and form a club, it's their own business. The only thing, and we maybe come back to this at another day when it becomes clear, I will be interested to see how it's funded. As in, as you say, this is. We're going to see a number of organisations in this who do receive taxpayers' funding. And it would be interesting to see if some of that taxpayer funding ends up going to this, so this ultimately becomes essentially another NGO. At which point then, it becomes something other than a private members' club where people can go and do what the hell they like in a democracy, which they can, which they should be able to do. But for the time being, it's just... I think, yeah, you're right, it's, it, it, this is just a manifestation of a lot of people who... If they could only have, if we only had more Nazis, we'd have more, fun. but, you know, we we have to get together, form a single unit, because we can't all go chasing Nazis, we'll end up just competing for Nazis. We You know, we
0: have to, we have to unify, because then we can really amplify individual Nazis and exploit them to their greatest potential.
1: I can't remember who it was, but there was a historian who was, he was talking about anti-Catholicism in Scotland, and he said that... By the eighteenth century in lowland Scotland there were almost no Catholics left. I think it was he was talking about at one stage now whether this was an anecdote or actually num no, the real numbers yet. At one stage it was estimated that there were around there were eleven Catholics in the city of Edinburgh and there was a number of people that used to follow follow them at all times, but they used to have to share it out because there were more people who wanted to follow them than there were Catholics to follow. So they actually used they didn't want to bump into each other as they were following them to see what nefarious activities the to. so they had to share out the the, the stalking duties and I'd say that's, it. that's it. maybe what's happening here. They just want to get together to organise, so, you know, you don't have people double stalking. Efficient uses of resources, you know, it's not a bad thing. I mean, it's ecological. <laughs> okay, it's ecological. <laughs> anyway, on the on the on the ecology note,
0: just just on on one point as well, the yeah. National Women's Council of Ireland is involved, which is again good. Um, well, shut my mouth. I know, I know. This is an odd topic to complain about, but. I've complained a lot about groups thinking that any issue that impacts upon their members or has the potential to impact on their members is an issue of their members. So student groups get involved in, let's say, pro-choice activism because a student could need an abortion. Yes, It is an issue that can impact on students, but it's not a student issue. And groups just going way beyond the bounds they need to be in. So, I mean, Michael, I'd assume there are some fascists in Ireland. A percentage of them are women.
1: Well, of course, that's the first thing that occurs to me, is what about the fascist women? Who's going to serve their needs? Who represents them? And,
0: <laughs> no,
1: I was... no, I won't. Uh... The
0: Irish Council for Civil Liberties is also involved. No. Because, Michael, you know, the Irish Council for Civil Liberties look like people who are going to be willing to take a bat to the head of a fascist. They're not. They're they... But they will, if you take a bat to the head of the fascist, explain in very media loving terms why that wasn't a breach of anyone's rights every now and then I think of the article the uh, head of the ICCL published at the start of the lockdown saying that there was no conflict between government restrictions due to COVID-19 and human rights and then think about when they later realized that was a terrible mistake and had to try and frantically backpedal and I just laugh because you sit there and you go what did you think was gonna happen <laughs> It's like reading that someone was bitten by a snake and you just kind of go did it just bite you or were it like were you doing something Did you have a stick were you fucking with it?
1: well I was juggling but you know I didn't mean the snake any harm
0: And also they've already brought up uh, anti-fascism as a as a organizational tool which I will use as a reason to say we actually recorded I think a, a full podcast on the origins of Antifa in, um, in 1930s Germany. Now, hmm. Antifa really has two modern births. You have the 1930s Gen- uh, Germany birth, which is where the phrase Antifa comes from. It's from anti action, which was set up by uh, Thaler, who was the head of the German Communist Party and worked quite closely with Stalin until such a point as Stalin realised he was no longer useful and left him to die.
1: Yeah, I, I think maybe the was it the did uh, the, the uh, whatchamacallit? The the Soviet pact, the whatchamacallit, the ribbon the Von made have something might have had something to do with that.
0: So we, we touched on that in as much detail as we could and I think it's actually quite interesting if you're interested in the history of it, because we talk a lot about how Antifa, the Nazi Party, and the Social Democrats in the Iron Front actually interacted. And when Antifa was dealing with the literal Nazi party, who they thought was were actual fascists, because Antifa, when it originally uh, arose, used Stalin's definition of fascism, which is a Marxist definition of fascism, which is that fascism is the last fight of the capitalistic system against socialism and, and, and Marxism. Yeah. And that anything which was at that point opposed to communism because obviously they were at the stage where capitalism was going to die in Germany was by a very definition fascism and no other characteristics matter you didn't have to be what we I was going to say understood as fascist but no one understands what fascism is now anyway so it doesn't bother but the second birth was in the punk movement in America where a lot of it was kind of reborn and we didn't touch on that but if you're interested in the the actual origins of the term I will try and include a link to the bottom of this uh, podcast i really enjoyed it we only did it because um, one of the left-wing podcasts published a podcast we had said something negative about antifa and they said we didn't understand it oh god yeah so we decided okay well what we'll do is we'll publish a full podcast on it and then we'll send it to them and we'll say look guys you're, you're an antifa podcast if anything we've said is incorrect or factually distorted, get back in touch with us and like we'll, we'll have a bit of back and forth and maybe, you know, a, a debate on it. Yeah. yeah. Michael, you know, they just stopped sending me messages after that.
1: <laughs> it's a very busy time.
0: But I think that that will be us for today. We will be back on Sunday and presumably we'll be back next week, despite my frantic efforts to take a holiday so I can enjoy Cyberpunk 2077. Uh, we will, I will probably still be here.
1: Oh, okay. We'll see you on Sunday. Bye-bye. All the best.